Just a moment. Just a moment. Welcome to the Future Law Podcast, exploring where the law has been. Hey Siri, take a selfie. And where it's going. Oh, good afternoon. From the brilliant... My name is Sophia, and I am the latest and greatest robot. To the scary... Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? And everything in between. Please welcome your very real and very human host, Lisa Leon. Hello. In this episode, Dan Hunter and Mike Madison play mind jazz around the topic of legal education and the legal profession. Riffing off the interview Dan did with Professor Ray Campbell from Peking University's School of Transnational Law. Welcome, everybody. You're back with the Future Law Podcast. I'm Dan Hunter. And I'm Mike Madison. And today we're going to be talking about the future of legal education with a focus on uh, the US system. So earlier I was at the Peking University School of Transnational Law in Shenzhen, China. Uh, They have a really interesting program uh, where they teach an American-style JD and a Chinese JM, and so their Juris Master, which entitles the students to uh, practice in China, but gives them a particular common law kind of focus. So uh, very unusual kind of program uh, allows them to, to practice across uh, cultures and across uh, jurisdictions in a way that pretty much no other students do. While I was there, I caught up with Professor Ray Worthy Campbell. A few years ago, uh, Ray wrote an article called uh, The End of Law Schools, and I interviewed him there about his article and what he thought the future of law is, uh, and he had a couple of things to say. So let's uh, hear from Ray. That's the world I grew up in, and I come from a family of you know with a lot of lawyers in it, and I like law schools. Uh, but you know, ultimately, you know, as Richard Susskind says, you know, law is not about lawyers uh, any more than than illness exists to serve doctors. Right. You know, it's um, you know when you think about law, you've got to think about why law matters, and it matters for society more than it matters for lawyers. You know, the idea of a, uh, you know, sort of well-ordered, uh, you know, systems of, of, of rights and privileges that, and duties that people can understand and function, you know, uh, efficiently and happily within goes way beyond lawyers. And as the world changes, uh, you need to think about, well, lawyers were a good solution for some legal needs for a long time. And I tend to think there'll be a solution for some legal needs, at least as long as I'm around. But but there are other solutions now that, that help uh, contribute to the, the idea of an orderly society. And I think law schools need to be thinking not about themselves as being about lawyers, but about being about that that's about society, about what society needs in terms of legal solutions. And so we should be going to be on the parochial, we're, we're part of a profession, we serve a profession, and we're not going to get our hands dirty with this other stuff and be thinking, what's the best thing for society? You know, how do we best serve society? And if it takes us beyond just training lawyers, that's where we should go. So what uh, do you think, uh, Mike? Should we be training lawyers or should we be thinking about society? I think we need to be doing both. I think Ray's put his finger on a really critical argument, and we're a really critical inflection point right now in terms of 
how law schools and legal education in general relate to broader questions of society, culture, economics, and justice. And the he's talking about whether the classical U.S.-style legal education model, which was focused on producing advocates and largely producing advocates to help clients resolve problems in courts. And that's dominated the way U.S. law schools have thought about education for a long, long time. And it's still very, very critical in many areas of society. But there are many, many parts of society today where that dispute resolution model is not sufficient and is not effective. But big questions of justice, equity, opportunity, success are raised and the standard legal ed toolkit isn't adequate. So so is it, what do we do about this? I mean, it seems when I look at the, the legal education system, it's, it's very much focused um, because of regulation on those kinds of things that you just you mentioned, you know, the, dis- the dispute resolu- resolution aspect, the, some of the transactional stuff, you know, the idea that you have this tool set as a lawyer that, you, that everyone has to have, otherwise they just actually can't be a lawyer. And, and I'm interested if there are any other models that we could uh, apply that would fit better with Ray's approach. One model that I've heard shared and that I've thought about a lot is medicine and public health. So health, medicine, medical treatment, public health, population health are giant questions, critical questions, but the educational pipelines to supply professionals into those worlds is very, very broad and diverse. We don't require that everybody go to medical school. We don't require that everybody get trained as a physician. We don't expect everybody who needs access to clinical care go to a full-on hospital. Uh, the, The medical world is a big, complicated place. But if we step back and look at how the educational system in that world has evolved, you see a much more diverse, much more ecological approach to producing professionals who serve needs at different scales for different purposes. Right. And I think you can't just impose that vision on legal ed, but I think if if one thing we need to have is a vision of where legal education might go, medicine and health is one thing I think we should keep in mind about how professional training could look different. One of the things I, I talked about with, with Ray is, is this idea of of legal sciences. You know, you've got a health sciences kind of module, a health sciences part of a university, which will cover all of these these related fields. And they're not just training doctors, they're training a range of people, physiotherapists and ophthalmologists and, and, and so on. And uh, and we don't have that kind of model in, uh, in law. And I'm wondering why. Why haven't we progressed to that stage when medicine has? Probably different reasons in different jurisdictions or different countries. Um, In the U.S., law is a professional degree. It comes after the bachelor's degree, uh, and it's very, very heavily regulated. And uh, the regulation and the formation of the professional community of practicing lawyers and the evolution of individual law schools over the last 120, 140 years has combined to impose what is generally perceived as a pretty rigid formula on legal education that prioritizes classic law schools in the Harvard Law School 
Langdellian model. Everybody graduates, takes the bar exam, goes into the practice of law representing individual clients. And for sort of historical path-dependent reasons, uh, it's very difficult to move away from that model. In in other countries, the educational model is a little bit different, whether you're talking Australia or the UK or Europe, where the, the, the law degree is typically a first degree rather than a professional degree. Uh, so the organizational causes, the historical causes, the regulatory barriers are configured a bit differently. Totally agree with you. Uh, I, I think that that's sort of been the, the reason for the, for the U.S. model going the way that it has. Interestingly, it hasn't really emerged in, in areas where they have a different model. So in Australia, in England, uh, South Africa, and that's still very much about this idea of a heavily regulated legal profession. Uh, and, and even though we have undergraduate degrees for, for a lot of our legal training, uh, you haven't really seen the emergence of a, of a kind of an ecosystem that actually has different sorts of um, legal services or legal service providers trained within the university which is interesting. In the U.S., there's a very, very active effort by the incumbent bar to police the boundaries of the profession against unauthorized practice of law. There's an enormous institutional investment in private law firms, in the judiciary, in the concept of the profession, its ethical frameworks. It's an enormous amount of money built into this, and all of that would be very, very radically disrupted if we started to really play with different models of training and service delivery. Ray had some things to say about uh, about the future of the profession riffing off off that. Let's let's hear him talk. I think it's a, a beautiful idea. I mean, I love the idea of a profession. I mean, you know, Roscoe Pound, I mean, you know, people in, engaged in a in a, a common pursuit uh, you know, uh, of, of justice that are only incidentally, you know, making money because right. you have to make money somehow. To, yeah. no, but but there is that, and I've and I've known lawyers who've who've lived that way. You know, who were very public service oriented and who took the idea of being a professional very seriously. So I think it's, I think it's beautiful. But but I also think it's it's limiting, as you say, because it it, it to the extent we think that's the only solution to society's problems. Uh, we ignore other things, and and I also think, in in too many cases, it's a little bit fake. I mean, there are there are people who at the annual law dinner feel very professional, and the rest of the time they're out grubbing for money, right? right? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, ambulances. yeah, or chasing general counsel, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've worked in big corporate law firms, and and you know, we didn't run ads on TV, but you know, it was well understood if you weren't generating the revenues, you weren't part of the firm anymore. So, I mean, it's it's. Um, I mean, I think it's I think it's a beautiful idea, and and there are people that argue this has always been only a beautiful idea. We've never really had a true profession. There are those who argue, well, we had one just yesterday, you know, just before I practiced, but it's been under challenge. And there's some who argue, well, we still have some of it today, and and to some degree, they're all right. I mean, it's never measured up. Uh, and there are individuals that I've known that live their lives as professionals, you know, according to the model that. You know Roscoe Pound or Elliot Friedson would would talk about, but I, I think some of the the ones that are most committed to public service would say, well, there's a way to solve you know access to justice issues that doesn't require, um, you know, all that we do. Then then why not? I mean I think the more public spirited you are, 
the more open you might be. So we're not solving all the problems. Uh, the profession isn't, isn't the solution, and um, maybe it's part of the problem. And we had a profession just yesterday. So what are your views on the profession and the profession of the future, Mike? I, I, I practiced law in corporate law firms for a long time before I became a, a professor. And so I'm very familiar with the kind of back and forth that Ray is describing in that section. Uh, I think the idea of the profession, the ethical aspirations of the profession, the social obligations of the profession, I think those are really important ideals. I think we can't abandon those either rhetorically or practically speaking. The problems come when people in the legal profession get so invested in those concepts that they can't see beyond the, the contours of the profession to really embrace the fact that real world problems are complicated and real world problems involve building teams and collaborations and competencies and skills that are beyond what classic law schools have taught. That you know the, the idea of the profession sometimes becomes an excuse to be defensive about the exclusivity of legal services being delivered by lawyers rather than an opportunity to bring all of the relevant players and stakeholders to the table to really be effective. You were just talking about how uh, the profession kind of regulates the boundaries really tightly. You know, the unauthorized practice of law is almost the worst thing that we can imagine as as professionals. It just Im- imagine the ability for someone who wasn't a trained lawyer to actually do law. That's just impossible. It's it's like training a dog to dance. You know, it's it just couldn't happen. So uh, I'm wondering what you think about the limitations of, of the concept of, of the profession, the legal profession. Because for me, I think the... The adherence to the idea of of law as a profession does cause some major systemic problems, largely in the delivery of uh, low cost services to to people who have legal needs. Uh, it's if if you've got a model where the training of lawyers is really expensive and no one but lawyers can uh, do do law, then you're going to end up necessarily with a really large number of unserviced legal needs. Right. Because in law, the idea of the legal profession is an either-or. Either you're a licensed attorney eligible to deliver services, or you're not. It's a very black and white kind of binary. Back to the medical analogy that we touched on earlier, if you look in the medical field, there are a lot of professionals in the medical field. Not every professional is a physician. Not every medical service needs to be delivered by a licensed person uh, in in the the, sort of that binary way. Medicine is much more of a spectrum. You've got physicians, you've got nurses, you've got, depending on your area, uh, your field of practice and your jurisdiction, you may have nurse practitioners. And so these are all trained professionals. They're different licensing regimes. They're eligible and capable of delivering different kinds of services to people at, at different registers of need, uh, budget, uh, you know, geography, uh, and so forth. So you're able to cover a much broader landscape in terms of solving social problems because you've, they, medicine has, to some degree, abandoned this either-or model. Yeah, and yet it's still incredibly expensive to deliver um, a high-quality service. But, but still, let's, let's leave that for the minute. Uh, do, you think, do you think that the, the concept of a legal profession actually is inimical to the development of a flourishing ecosystem such as the one that you're talking about within within medicine applying in law so i'm uh, invited to say something controversial (laughs) putting you on the spot here hey you're a host of this like pin your colors Uh, to the mask my friend you 
know, I I think it's worth considering the question. Uh, and I'm not quite sure I'm comfortable going so far as to simply agree with you with the with the premise. So is the is the profession something that we should throw over uh, as a concept in order to be sure to be effective in delivering legal services and and legal competency to, to society and to individuals who need them? Uh, I think it's a, a topic that's ripe for consideration. I think that we've taken the idea of the profession for granted for a long time, that uh, there are obviously scholars in law programs all over the world who focus on questions of ethics and professional responsibility in the shape of the profession. But uh, and so that's not my field of expertise per se. But when I do see the papers and reports coming out of those research centers, uh, I I rarely see deep dives into these fundamental questions about the composition of law as a field. Right. Ray had a few things to say about this this uh, example of of uh, the medical institutions having different uh, registers, different mechanisms of regulation. Uh, let's hear from from him for one last time. I mean, I think there's a lot of institutional inertia, and someone has to be first. But one of the arguments I make in, in, in the article that, you know, we started off talking about is that, you know, someone's got to be first. You know, when Harvard, when Langdell started the model that's now dominant at Harvard, everyone else had people standing up and reading lecture notes and people writing them down. And his was a, a major break from tradition to sort of say, we're going we're gonna to be more like scientists. And, but our, our, you know, specimens are cases. You know, we're not going to have, you know, a geologist looks at rocks, we look at cases. So his was a radical break, and I think we're at a time in history where we're due for, you know, another radical break. I mean, you know, the Langdell models had a 150-year run, which is a pretty good run. Uh, but I think exactly what you're talking about makes a lot of sense. And I think it, it's better for—it's uh, more efficient. I mean, for example, to be a compliance practitioner, you need to know something about law, but you don't need a three-year or four-year law program. Uh, and you also need to know things that law schools are not currently competent to teach. You need to know, uh, you know, why people do the things they do at a psychological level. You need to know uh, statistical techniques and artificial intelligence techniques to help you track behavior and organization so you can see if you have problems. Right. I mean, um, you know, we don't teach that. Uh, so, and it could be a shorter, less expensive, you know, more accessible program to do a master's in compliance. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think it would be better for scholarship because I, I think, I mean, I, you know, legal scholarship from the Langdale time on, and this has changed somewhat with the empirical legal studies movement, uh, but there is a tendency for law schools traditionally to focus on cases, you know. And I think these other schools... Would, would do what the law and society mo movement and, and the empirical legal studies movement have tried to do but not quite succeeded in doing in really broadening law school beyond cases to really law as it is in society. So we need to do things differently in, in law school. What do, you, what do you think about what Ray was saying about uh, the different things that we need to be doing? I think he's touched the tip of a very important iceberg. Um, so I agree 100% with his intuitions about all of the things that, that pro legal professionals, let's call them legal professionals rather than simply lawyers, uh, all the things that they need to know to be effective going forward. And there's a lot of, he's focusing on analytic skills or competencies beyond classic legal analysis and legal training. There's a whole set of uh, skills and competencies that, for example, business schools and business programs are associated with usually around project management and 
teamwork and leadership and strategic thinking uh, that really are generally ignored in most law schools classically. Uh, so the whole uh, sort of, we'll say, the emotional or affective side of being a professional as well as the think-like-a-lawyer side of being being a lawyer, uh, all of that is stuff that, that should be, uh, in some respects, included in a, an effective system of legal education, although not necessarily in any every specific law program needs to do all of these things. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I look around at, at, at law schools, you know, they're, obviously they're all um, stamped out of the, the Langdale model, even if, even if you're talking about outside of the United States. But certainly within the United States, you know, everything, everything tries to look as much like Harvard as, as possible. Uh, and, and, uh, and that's obviously not sustainable. You know, what, what I think uh, is, is part of the systemic problem that, that U.S. law schools have been having now for, for the, the last three or four years uh, is really based on, on that sort of one-size-fits-all kind of idea and the idea that um, you have to be producing lawyers, not, not other sorts of legal professionals. And, and I'm interested to, to hear from you, Mike, if you sort of see any school out there which is looking a little bit differently at this particular problem and saying, hey, there are other sorts of legal professionals. Uh, there has to be one that goes first, and we want to be the one that goes first to actually start addressing those particular uh, opportunities. Looking at the U.S. law school landscape, there are definitely law schools where there are individual deans or faculty members or specific programs within the school that have stepped out of the Harvard Law School traditional norm and tried to advance at least an initial version of of a different vision. Um, I think it's premature to say that any individual school has really developed and implemented a, a, a complete or comprehensive sort of new model uh, in competition with the uh, inherited model. And interestingly, the, the schools that I have in mind, I'll give you a couple of examples. Elon Law School at Elon University in North Carolina comes to mind as a school that's got a lot of really provocative things happening. It's not an elite university law school yep. by U.S. standards. That gives it some imperative and, and uh, opportunity to innovate uh, in ways that uh, you know help distinguish Elon in the competition for new students. There are some very interesting programs within the JD programs at places like Stanford and Northwestern, which are clearly much higher up the the U.S. Uh, rankings of, of high-status law schools. But nothing at those two law schools I have seen really says that Stanford is reimagining the, the JD degree or Northwestern is rethinking its comprehensive approach. So you so back to Ray's question in the in the in the clip. He's asking somebody has to go first, who's going to go first? And I think it's uh, that's still an undetermined question. There's a lot of initial ferment yeah, right now. Yeah. I I mean if I if I look at the last uh, say 20 years of US law schools and and this is pretty much the same everywhere else, uh, the the only real innovation that seems that I can think of that seems to have happened in that time is the gradual introduction of LLM programs for for foreign foreign students and and for a few uh, U.S. students uh, with you know one year programs that do certain things certain types of professional training initially in tax but then in, you know increasingly in other kind of areas um, and then a little bit 
um, uh, around things like the creation of MLS programs, which are to to give people who are not lawyers some some legal training. But but kind of that's it. I mean, you know, obviously, there's a, there's a lot of kind of as you say, foment within the, an individual JD, individual professors introduce new electives, individual deans kind of push certain agendas, but as a structural system, systematic change, really very little change has happened within, within the legal education landscape over the last 20 years, I would argue. Yeah, the one thing I would add to your, your inventory is law clinics, mm-hmm. which obviously predate the last 20 years, but which have continued to be a very important part of uh, U.S. legal education in particular, really dating back to the, the late 60s, early 1970s. Uh, so a lot of people in U.S. legal education would argue that law clinics, clinical legal education, skills-based uh, education has really, really contributed substantially to uh, ev- evolution of the Langdell-Harvard model, even at Harvard, which has a big clinical program as well. The The difficulty in evaluating the clinical movement is that I don't think that law clinics have really changed the fundamental template. Right. It's still it's still a JD, right? It's still it's still a clinic within a JD. Okay, that's great. It's a better JD, but it's still a JD serving a particular sort of need, producing these special people who are lawyers with this amazing special skill that only they can that they can practice. Um, so, so we always end uh, our recordings uh, with something practical or some discussion about the future of of, of law. Based on what what uh, Ray said, uh, what do you what do you think the future of legal education is within the U.S. system? I'm optimistic, to be perfectly honest. I think that Ray is right that this is a very critical inflection point. Uh, but I think that uh, it it can be distracting to think about legal education in its totality, or to say law schools as a group should all do X going forward. Uh, that's way too ambitious, and in practical terms, I don't think that's going to happen long-term or near-term. I think the better thing to do is to focus on some of these fermenting bubbles of interest and activity at different law schools, and they're coming from different places. Some faculty, some deans, some alumni and practitioners, some in the law tech space, some in the design space. I think the important thing is to track those efforts to see how they are emerging, relating to each other, attracting support inside education, attracting support outside in the professional world, and standard change management. Drive more resources to the pilots that look like they're thriving, pull the plug on things that seem that they're struggling, or pivot and encourage them to go in new directions, and you know, be a little bit patient, because nothing's going to happen overnight. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably right. I, I mean, I certainly know that nothing's going to happen overnight in, in terms of the change to legal education, but, but uh, I, th- I think you're probably right. There, there will be some uh, pilots that will lead somewhere. I, I think we're, we're kind of at an interesting point. Uh, this is really the, the reason for the creation of the Future Law podcast, right, which is that we are at an inflection point. It's, it's clear that things are changing. It's not clear how they're going to look. Um, I wish I had a. I wish I had your level of optimism around uh, around law schools and, and legal education, because I, I think the institutional inertia is is greater within them than the the desire for change. I think there's a recognition for, for uh, that change has to happen, but there are still a lot of people who who are kind of going, oh well, the model's not really broken, and we'll kind of keep doing it. Maybe we'll innovate at the edges a little bit, but that just means that you get basically the same kind of JD or LLB, but with 
uh, slightly different bells and whistles on it, but not not profoundly changed. And I'm not sure that that's good for society in the long term, which is sort of what Ray said. Okay, so uh, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been uh, Dan Hunter, Mike Madison, and Lisa Leong for the Future Law Podcast, produced by Jay Muller of Bad Producer Studios uh, and brought to you by Swinburne Law School. Uh, listen to us on iTunes and all of the regular podcast platforms and available at thefuturelawpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Future Law Podcast. For links to the articles mentioned and to contact the hosts, visit futurelawpodcast.com.